This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to a special series on the Albemarle FCPA enforcement action on this week's edition of the FCPA Compliance Report. Over the next several episodes, we're going to explore the Albemarle FCPA resolution through a variety of lenses. We're going to open with Matt Kelly giving us an overview of the case, followed then with Karen Moore focusing on internal controls. Christy Grant Hart is going to talk to us about the holdbacks and the significance of those. And then we're going to have uh, some episode with lessons learned from the case. It's an interesting case, the largest FCPA case in 2023. I know you'll enjoy this special short series on the Albemarle FCPA enforcement action. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of the Albemarle FCPA enforcement action. We're going to take a little bit of a deep dive into it, and we're going to start with Matt. Hope can hopefully provide us a overview. So over to you, Mr. Kelly. Sure. So let me see if I can do this succinctly, which is not easy because this is a big and complicated case. But Albemarle is a chemicals company, and one part of their business is that they make chemicals for oil that you can put into an oil refinery to improve the refinery's operations, which means it sells to oil companies such as state-owned oil companies. Issue number one, people can see where this is going. And according to the settlement announced by the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Department of Justice, they had engaged in a scheme from roughly 2009 to in India, Vietnam, and Indonesia, those are the three countries in question, where Albemarle was using intermediaries to sell chemicals to state-owned oil companies in those countries. And of course, the intermediaries were just cutouts to be able to funnel bribes to the government officials at those state-owned oil companies. To that extent, this is kind of the same old. We have heard that a lot. Uh, One particular detail I thought was pretty funny is that the fixer, who I think was based out of Singapore or Vietnam, but this was the fixer helping to arrange business with the Vietnam oil company was specifically told that when referring to the government official who ultimately would receive the bribes, you had to refer to him as his friend, quote unquote. And that was, you had to use the quotes, not just say my friend in Vietnam, but my friend in Vietnam, in quotes, in all email communications. So Hadn't seen that happen before. But we have a couple of interesting points here that I'm sure Karen and Christy and Tom, you guys can all explore as well. One thing that I thought was interesting is we have a good glimpse of what reasonably prompt disclosure is in the eyes of the Justice Department, and more specifically, what is not reasonably prompt, because Albel knew about these allegations and sat on them for 16 months before disclosing the issue to the Justice Department. The DOJ says, no, that is not reasonably prompt, 16 months. On the other hand, they did win credit for withholding bonuses totaling $760,000 during the course of their internal investigation. So that led to a fine reduction. That's a positive. Yet again, on the other hand, though, the Securities and Exchange Commission called out, quote, repeated and glaring bribery-related red flags 
and next time we're doing this podcast, I'm going to find a red flag to wave it from now on. But the internal audits that Albemarle did in 2013, 2015, 2016, they had identified multiple gaps in Albemarle's internal controls that were never remediated in a timely fashion. So there were some issues there, but ping-ponging back again, what was some of the good news? So the DOJ did outline a lot of remediating factors and remedial improvements that Albemarle had done to lift up its standing in the eyes of the regulators. And one thing that it did was it had begun remediation measures based on its internal investigation while the government was doing its own investigation. We'll say that again. Albemarle discovered the incidents, was doing its own investigation, started remediating while it was still investigating, Start was still remediating while it told Justice Department we have this issue, and then that is something that apparently the DOJ liked to see. That they started remediating even before they understood exactly where this train was going to end. And funny enough, that is something that came up in discussion at the SCCE conference, not about Albemarle specifically, but there was one session about the importance of starting remediation even before your investigation is done because some things you're going to have to fix, regardless of whatever conclusions you might find. And the panel was uniformly saying, yes, you should do that. And now we have this case that basically said, kudos to Albemarle for doing that. And the other big remediation measure that jumped out to me was that uh, Albemarle transformed its whole business model to reduce corruption risk by implementing a new strategy where they eliminated sales agents throughout the whole company. So there are hundreds of these third-party sales reps who are a walking red flag under themselves. They eliminated all of that sort of structure, distributors, resellers, and whatnot. All of it went out the window and shifted to a direct sales business model, which does cut down your corruption risk because there are no third parties. You are just selling directly to the state-owned company. Still have a lot of risk, but you eliminated a level of it. We can go on from there. Ultimately, this was $118 million in fines and disgorgement. It was $103 million in disgorgement interest to the Securities and Exchange Commission, $98 million criminal penalty, and then $16.6 million in other additional forfeiture, which I am not entirely clear on what that might entail. But that all totals up to 218 point something or other million dollars. So this is the biggest FCPA settlement I think we've seen in a while and maybe the whole year. But that's the rough outline of the case. Tom. Mr. Armstrong, do you have a question or comment for Matt? Yeah, two quick comments. First of all, I've also had an investigation over the use of quotation marks. Simple message to learn is quotes cost cash. If you've got people in your organization who put things in quotation marks and a regulator or prosecutor finds those quotation marks, you're going to be asked to explain why it's in quotes. Really easy to do using software like Relativity to find stuff in quotation marks. Regulators want you to do that in some respects. It gives them something to beat you over the head with. And then I also agree, as a general rule, I've I know I've been banging on about this on these podcasts for for years. Whenever you've got an investigation, you have to do the remediation work in parallel. 
even if it's not something that you think that authorities know about, cure as you go and find the harm is critical. And we've seen much better regulatory outcomes when organisations have learned lessons quickly and tried to correct what went wrong. Jonathan, that's just an excellent point. It jars my memory that in the world of internal audit, this is not even a question. When you find a process that is riddled with ineffective controls, that's a mess and you have to clean it up. But the very first thing you do is you in, uh, introduce compensating controls to at least keep things together while yeah. you're figuring out how to clean up the mess. That's all that this is. And there shouldn't be any additional question about it just because we're talking in compliance terms. In internal audit, they would all say, duh, of course you should do this. And they're right. So Matt, I have a question, two questions for you, uh, actually. I'm not sure I understand the discussion around self-disclosure. Did the company get credit for it somehow? They certainly didn't make a timely self-disclosure, and the DOJ pointed that out. So what are your thoughts around the entire discussion of self-disclosure? Uh, I have to admit, I don't know off the top of my head, and I don't think I should you know, just go diving into the details of the uh, DPA right now. I don't know if they got any credit for self-disclosure, but I do know that DOJ dinged them for this was not a prompt voluntary self-disclosure. It was voluntary self-disclosure, but you know the descriptions of it that uh, even Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, she mentioned at uh, the SCE conference when she spoke just the other day, it is supposed to be timely, voluntary self-disclosure. And sitting on something for six months, 16 months is not timely. And so I don't know how much that deducted from the voluntary part, but they didn't like to see it. And I think it just does go to show that I don't know if we have a hard and fast rule on voluntary and timely, but if you look at the Cognizant Technologies case from a few years ago now, which is held in high praise for how the board handled that, if I remember correctly, they disclosed this to the Justice Department within weeks, not months, weeks. I think it was two weeks. And if you're disclosing in two weeks, clearly you have no idea where this is going to go and how it's going to end, but you're still stepping up and admitting it now that sends a signal that the Justice Department likes to see. Matt, the second either comment or question I have is around the discount they received. And perhaps I'd just like to emphasize that under the new corporate enforcement policy that was announced in January, the company got a discount beyond the low range of the sentencing guidelines of 45% off the bottom range. And I just want everyone to understand that is a huge benefit because the sentencing guidelines, typically there will be hundreds of millions of dollars between the top and the bottom. So even at the middle is a discount off the top. But when you start at the bottom and you go 45% off that, that saved this company real money. And if we can suss out what exactly they did to save all that money, I think those would be some great lessons learned for compliance professionals who may find themselves in a similar situation down the road. Well, Tom, I would just add that there are people out there who are basically coming out critics of the Justice Department saying that companies are getting off very lightly now. At this point, if you voluntarily self-disclose, cooperate and remediate, you can pretty much get almost nothing and like and a new car. They are that desperate to avoid 
going to court and having to issue subpoenas in front of a grand jury, there are up there who say that the Justice Department shouldn't be afraid to bare its teeth in case companies are being jerks or are sitting on things for too long. And uh, it's worth exploring in further podcasts some other time. This is Tom Fox again. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope you'll subscribe, rate, and review wherever great podcasts are listened to. I'd like to tell you about two great new podcasts on the Compliance Podcast Network, Adventures in Compliance, where I look at the intersection of Sherlock Holmes, leadership, compliance, and business ethics. I'm doing all of the Sherlock Holmes stories as well as the novels. Another is Report from ECI 2023, where I interviewed speakers, guests, and participants at ECI 2023. I know you'll enjoy both of these new podcasts. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.